surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About It. This is Taylor, your host, and today we will be getting to know a woman named Lindsay Hall who has a blog and she writes about um, her recovery with eating disorders. She also speaks out about PCOS um, and is also just very, very vulnerable on her Instagram at Lindsay Hall Writes and shares about not only her eating disorder recovery, but um, about relationships and just about life overall in general. So I'm really excited to chat with her and um, share her story with you guys and just kind of further this conversation around mental health and eating disorders. And we'll definitely get into some body image stuff as well. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation and want to give a warm welcome to Lindsay. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I am. I'm really excited because there are several parts of your life that you've been really honest and vulnerable about that we have never discussed on the podcast before. Um, things like PCOS, and um, you've also just been super open about your relationships on on your blog and on social media. So, first off, just want to say like thank you for having that transparency and helping kind of start some of those conversation conversations with the people that that follow you because it takes a lot of courage to be open like that and you're like very how do I describe this like it's very you're very raw in such like a beautiful transparent honest way that I think is really refreshing and and different from what I've seen a lot of, of other people do I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, it always it comes with its um, ups and downs as anything does. I I don't know how else to be but to to share my experience in in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it certainly hasn't always been easy for my relationships. <laughs> I always like to <laughs> I always like to say that because you know it seems sometimes as though I've like honed some way of being able mm-hmm. to talk about things where it doesn't ever come back and bite me in the ass. But mm-hmm. yeah, but as as you know, I mean, being on television or anything like that, mm-hmm. it's like you never know how your words are going to be taken by somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is interesting that you bring that up because I think, you know, oftentimes when we are being really raw and vulnerable and sharing parts of our lives with people on social media or in some kind of a public way that, you know, whether we like it or not, that oftentimes usually someone else is involved in that. You know, like if I share that Mm -hmm. my partner and I are in couples therapy, like his mom is finding out from members of her book club that her son's in couples therapy. (laughs) that, That is totally the same kind of stuff I deal with too. And it's like, Every yeah, and it's you know even down to I've been writing a lot. I was I was engaged. Um, I was mm-hmm. engaged a couple of months ago, and that engagement did not work out. Mm-hmm. So I've been writing quite a bit about that, and you know that's mm-hmm. still something that I'm processing because it hasn't. It's only mm-hmm. been three or four months since it ended, mm-hmm. and uh, I am with somebody else. I'm I'm actually updating my roommate. Lol. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I've been you know very open about like going through this breakup and and talking to my ex quite a bit and seeing him just because I don't you know I don't think relationships end just because we say it's over. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of unpacking to do there and a lot of. Growth 
growth that can be done when when both parties are willing to be self-aware enough to own mm-hmm. up to some of the things that they brought into the relationship that might not have been the you know the most helpful totally. and uh, but e- but even then yeah it's like it's hard because i'll write about my ex and then you know my new partner ha- his sister <laughs> follows me on instagram or something and like and i'm always like i wonder what she feels about that you know yes. so yeah it comes it, it always it always everything comes with a consequence but i also feel like it's the most freeing thing that i have is mm-hmm. to be able to write that way so totally yeah. And <laughs> yeah and it's you know for me I, I look at it as like this is my truth and this is my platform to share my truth and I have to be honest with myself about that and certainly mm-hmm. understanding that it will impact other people and you know taking accountability and taking responsibility for that of course but at the same time not silencing yourself or making yourself smaller or denying your truth in any way to make other people feel more comfortable mm-hmm. um, I think that's a uh, a struggle that a lot of people can relate to when wanting to be open and honest with, with their story and, and their life. And I mean, I think what you described even just about the way kind of, of moving through relationships is such a beautiful way to view it. And I think, I feel like I can relate in some ways. Like I always try my best. It doesn't work out with every relationship, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to leave same. it with that kind of gratitude. And even, I mean, your post, like you you did a specific post that was kind of about your breakup um, from your engagement. Mm-hmm. And even just like reading through all of that, I was like, oh my God, like <laughs> this is like so real. And I felt Thank like you. I was like in it with you. And it also just felt like, there wasn't this, I don't know. Well, I think, you know, we have a, it's kind of the same thing as it is the the approach that I've taken with the eating disorder as well is that there's, there's beautiful parts of it to, to take from the whole experience as much as there is the regret and Mm -hmm. the resentfulness and and every, you know, I I just feel like every experience, there's something to be taken from it that you can learn from. Mm -hmm. And so when I write about my exes, it's, you know, and of course, I'd be lying and completely full of shit if I was saying that I'm just really willing to put everything out there on the yeah. table because it's not fair to him or her or mm-hmm. whoever I'm dating at the time to do totally. that to them. It's not, you know, my story is to tell theirs. Exactly. And um, and, and so it, it's always kind of cherry picking the little lessons out of each thing, which is what I feel like I'm also trying to do with eating when it comes to talking about the eating disorder and whatnot as well. Because mm-hmm. people have a tendency to really put everything into black and white, right? Like we put our oh, relationships yeah. in black and white. We put our we put our recovery stories into black and white. And uh, I don't think that everything is black and white. I think everything has a bit of gray to it. So mm-hmm. totally. I'm always trying to find the gray. <laughs> totally, it's I I kind of look at the black and white as these two boxes that we're always trying to fit things into like a category to try to make sense of it, so that we feel more comfortable with the mm-hmm. things that are uncomfortable. Um, and in reality, like our 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 box has got to look a whole lot different than just black or white because there's there's so much mess and beauty and all the things in between and all that gray. Um, so I think that's... Yeah, and I think, I think it's hard to take ownership for parts of our life that we maybe don't feel the most proud of, right? You mm-hmm. know, because it's, it's, it's embarrassing when an engagement ends. Like, mm-hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't easy for me. It was embarrassing for knowing that I mean I still even now it hasn't been that long so I if I haven't seen somebody in a long time yeah recently I went to a wedding and my old colleague was there and she asked about my engagement how it was going and I was like <laughs> well 
that's not happening. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so there's still a kind of shame around some of those topics. Mm-hmm. Like if an engagement doesn't work or if you go to rehab for something and, mm-hmm. you know, and that's just, I just, it, I'm, I'm able to compare the two quite easily in my head because yeah. I've had to work through owning both of those stories and, and now this, and I'm thankful that I was able to own some of the eating disorder stuff first. Mm-hmm. So, cause it's made me be able to have a lot more self-awareness and ownership over the other parts of my life that may happen that yeah. I'm not necessarily that proud of. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. It's time for a short break and I want to share a new sponsor of the pod that I'm excited to share with all of you. And, you know, we've talked about education before on the podcast and you guys all know that I have my master's degree and I want to share Ashford University. Um, You can actually get your master's degree there. It's super convenient and flexible. The program allows you to learn at your own pace and you can study wherever you're the most comfortable learning. For me in in my graduate degree, it was on my couch. That was where I studied with my foster cats. Uh, but it's it's a really awesome university. Uh, you can get six-week-long courses that allow you to take one course at a time. Uh, so being enrolled in one class at Ashford means you're considered a full-time student. And there's no standardized tests required. So the GRE, the GMAT, and other standard test scores are not required for enrolling at Ashford. And that was actually, you know, depending on your degree, for me, that was one of the most important things. Like I was searching for a degree in... Uh, um, in counseling. And I was like, why do I need the GRE to do counseling? So when I picked my university for my master's, I actually really appreciated that, that they didn't require me to take the GRE. Uh, but Again, Ashford University is um, an accredited university, uh, fully accredited, and I want you guys to check them out. So if you're interested and want to get back into school or get your master's degree and and whatever it is, start your career that, you know, has been uh, kind of held back because you didn't have this higher education, uh, you can achieve your master's degree while balancing work and home life and start earning your master's degree today. So you can enroll now by going to ashford.edu slash Taylor. That's ashford.edu slash Taylor to start your master's degree today. You guys could literally get started on this today. Just start one class at a time and before you know it, you'll be there. Again, that's ashford.edu slash Taylor. And now we can get back to the show. I'm wondering if we can kind of back up a little bit here and if you could share a little bit about your story with eating with your eating disorders and kind of how how that came about and I know mm-hmm. you've you've talked about going to rehab um so yeah if you could just tell us a little bit more about that Yeah absolutely you know I'm always a firm believer that it's not you know I like I try to keep this story shorter um and the recovery piece of it a little bit longer just because I do feel like ultimately at the end of the day eating disorders are so prevalent especially in uh the United States and in all English speaking countries um it, they're so prevalent. Everyone has their story and a lot of them sound quite alike because mm-hmm. of the culture that we are in and the way the media is, et cetera. And, you know, all these other outlying factors. But, mm-hmm. uh, I had, I always say my stories about like everyone else's. I was 16 when I, when I developed an eating disorder. Um, but of course nobody goes into an eating disorder thinking it's going to be an eating disorder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we go into it with the ridiculous diet culture, um, mm-hmm. talk of I'm going to lose X amount of pounds or I'm trying to get fit or get healthy or all the little kitschy catchphrases that we use in this 
this yes. this society. And um, gonna get my beach so, bod. <laughs> yeah, beach bod, all of that, right? And um, and so it started off innocently enough, as it always does. And throughout high school, I would say it was manageable. It was just really, I was starting to get more. You know, it just it all builds on itself. Mm-hmm. I call it the cycle. It's the eating yeah. disorder cycle, and you don't even know that you're entering it. And um, I was, you know, starting to notice calories, just starting to become aware of things. Eat This, Not That was a book that was really popular back yeah. in like 2007, 2006. I remember that. I had yeah, that book. We had that at our house. <laughs> totally, right? Everyone did. It was like that picture illustrated book yes. of Eat This, Not That. And uh, Twitter was really big back then too. And mm-hmm. uh, Eat This, Not That had a big Twitter site at the time. I don't know if they do anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I started you know, religiously following that. And uh, it just became one thing after the other. And and so by the time I went to college, I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And I would also, I would also always say, I love my home. I'm actually in my home right now. I live in Colorado, but I'm here visiting my family this weekend. And, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure for women growing up in, in the world that I grew up in. Um, we were kind of expected to be attractive and attractive mm-hmm. looked a certain way, right? Yeah. And so I grew up my whole life watching my mother and her friends um, be, you know, take, they were very uh, preoccupied with how they mm-hmm. looked. And there was just yeah. a lot of, there was a lot of pressure as a kid um, to grow up and look the same way. So mm-hmm. when I went to college, uh, my best friend passed away my first month of college which of course mm. was the most tragic thing I've I've ever went you know yeah. gone through to date and um he died unexpectedly one night our first month and mm. um I just always look at that as the turning point I think things were manageable up until then but I think when you're starting to develop those negative coping skills and I was starting to restrict more and work out more mm-hmm. I found solace in that and so when he passed I just didn't I was so young mm-hmm. I didn't have any idea how to handle it and I couldn't handle it because, you know, we're always, I always say this, we're like, we're allotted like a month or two to grieve openly. And then it's almost like we're oh, expected yeah. to like be over it. Yeah. <laughs> what, whether it's a breakup or a death or whatever, mm-hmm. we're, we're just expected to have like moved forward. And I did not move forward in a month or two months. I, he was like a brother to me and mm-hmm. I still, you know, to this day, I still grieve him and I think I always will, but yeah. At the time, the only way I knew how to express that pain was to starve or to restrict or, you know, and it just Mm -hmm. all started coming out in different ways. So throughout the years from college, from like 18 to 23, and I always like to say this because I think there's a huge stigma around eating disorders in this culture that if you have an eating disorder, you always look a certain way, right? Like if you're anorexic, you look one way. If Mm -hmm. you're a binge eater, you look one way. And I never looked like that. So I think that's why a lot of people didn't, you know, I didn't even really understand that I had an eating disorder for five years. I yeah. knew something was wrong. Like you never, you never not know something's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I didn't know how to ask for help because I was technically a healthy weight for mm-hmm. a lot of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my weight fluctuated quite a bit from 18 to 23 because, as, of course, as I later learned in rehab, it's like, yeah, if you're starving yourself, then binge eating, then yes. purging, and you're living in that cycle, your body retains your, you know, it just, your mm-hmm. body does weird things to try to compensate for it. Yeah. And so by the time I was 23, I moved countries because, of course, I had what a lot of people, I think especially millennials, deal with mm-hmm. and that I wanted to live. I, th- I kept thinking my environment would change me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I kept, so I kept moving. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, yeah, and I moved overseas thinking like, oh, if I go to Europe, they're probably so different. Like I'll totally shut it. Cause at that time I knew it was an issue. Like I mm-hmm. really, uh, it's all I could 
could think about, it was really starting to affect my daily life mentally and physically. And so I moved to Europe, thought that would change it. Of course it didn't. It just made me, I lost control. I didn't know Mm -hmm. how to count calories over there. So it just made me even more stringent about Mm -hmm. working out. And so I kind of came back dejected after a year and moved to New York because, of course, I thought, oh, well, New York's really liberal and progressive. <laughs> like, that'll yes. change me. Um, yes. <laughs> that didn't. And uh, and then by the time I was like 20, yeah, I was 24. Um, I was just a mess. Like, there's, you know, I, I don't even like to go into all the symptoms. So I don't like stigmatizing it. But I was a really, really big mess. And, mm-hmm. um, and I came back and it was Thanksgiving and I had a wedding in Texas. And finally, my friends had started intervening with my parents. And they were like, hey, like, she's not doing well. Like she's acting really erratic with food. And my roommate was my best friend from childhood. So she had called my parents and was like, I'm worried about her. She's like hiding food and doing all this stuff. So my parents were noticing, and this is the story I always tell is that my dad, my dad, uh, noticed how much food we had in the pantry and we went to a wedding that all three of us were invited to and I had binge ate two boxes of cereal prior to going and my dad had fished those out of the trash when they got home because he noticed they were gone Hmm. and uh, he had them waiting on the coffee table when I got back from the wedding at like two in the morning and of course I was trashed because I always thought alcohol was going to like help Mm -hmm. heal like (laughs) somehow I thought alcohol was going to help me from like eating um, and so I, I came home and I just remember that was kind of the end of it. So after that, I went to residential treatment. I was in Florida for six weeks and then I was an outpatient in Dallas, Texas. And that's kind of where my blog all started for the, uh, I haven't shaved in six weeks, mm-hmm. which is that I got out and, um, I really, you know, I couldn't find anything on rehab when I was looking for, I couldn't find any like firsthand account, right. Of like what the day-to-day life was going to be. It's really scary when mm-hmm. you're going to treatment and you have no idea, like who's going to be in there. What's yeah. the food going to be like? Like, what do we do every day? Like, am I going to be in a straight jacket? Like mm-hmm. I didn't understand what it was going to be like. And I really, really like, all I could find was like clinical blog posts and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. so I got out and I was like, you know, I was already, I majored in writing and that's always been my passion. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to like give a firsthand account. And that's where the blog started. And uh, it's, I haven't shaved in six weeks.com because I thought I couldn't bring a razor. I didn't know that, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. of course it makes, of course it makes sense now to not have razors around a treatment center. Mm-hmm. But, um, at the time when they took my razor, I wasn't allowed to shave for six weeks. And so I remember thinking, you know what? That's something that people might want to know if they're going in there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's where it started. It's kind of a, an overview of my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So it's time for a short little break here with a wonderful sponsor that I really want you guys to listen to because you will want to take advantage of this. Um I absolutely love eating and I think we all do. And honestly, sometimes I go through my day, uh, literally just two days ago was working and realized like I hadn't ate. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even put time in my day today to be able to eat. And wouldn't it be nice if like our parents still actually packed our lunches? Um, I guess that's what meal planning is for, but sometimes you lose sight of that. So I want to help connect you guys with DoorDash that helps connect you to your favorite restaurants in your city. The ordering is so easy. You just open the DoorDash app, you choose what you want to eat, and then your food is delivered right to you wherever you are. So like, who doesn't like that? Like you should keep doing what you're doing and then food just gets delivered to you. Uh, They offer door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada. 
which is a major plus for me uh, when I have to go visit Canada Man. Uh, you can order your local go-tos or choose from your favorite national restaurant chains like Chipotle, which is one of my favorite go-tos. So really, don't worry about dinner. Just let it come to you with DoorDash. So you guys right now, my wonderful, wonderful listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code TALK. Again, that's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and then you enter promo code TALK. Don't forget, you're going to want to use this when you don't want to have to make food. That's promo code TALK for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. So enjoy, guys, and have a wonderful, wonderful meal. And now we can get back to the show. I think a lot of what I heard was this notion of control. And I think oftentimes eating disorders start with someone attempting to have control over something in their life of feeling Mm. like all these other things, you know, losing your friend, totally out of your control, um, being in, in college in a new place and all these things happening around you. And that food is the one thing that we feel like we have control over. And then even the moving and whatnot, that that's like, that's your decision. You know, this is in, in your control kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think just kind of what you, what you described of just feeling like you're a mess and this total loss of control that it's... Uh, it's well, I'm tough. sure you've, I'm sure, I, I assume you've felt it in some degree as a public figure of like, of having pressure and getting compliments for how you look, right? And it's oh, like, totally. and it, mm-hmm. it's, we're such a society based around physical complimenting mm-hmm. that when you do lose weight or get more tone or this or that, we have this like penchant for always uh, complimenting people for it, for all mm-hmm. of it. And so I think, you know, I've written about this quite a bit. I think there's that in itself is somewhat of a drug, you know, is, is, is like getting validated for weight loss and getting validated. And it's so why I think a lot of people take it too far mm-hmm. is because they're he- hearing from all these different people that it's good for you or that you look great or that you, you know, and when those compliments stop, that can be really painful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit, just, I'm, I mean, I know you do in your blog too, but just kind of what that experience in treatment was like for you, like what kinds of things um, you thought it was going to be like that maybe you were proved wrong or things that you found yeah. super helpful there. Yeah. You know, I think treatment is so different than it's stigmatized. Well, I was at a big treatment center, which I think has its, it has its ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the bigger the bigger the treatment center is, the less one on one help you're getting. Yeah. Um, and then also the more corporate it gets, mm-hmm. which I have a lot of feelings about big corporate oh, yeah. <laughs> corporate treatment centers. Same. And I think John Oliver actually has yep. done several oh, episodes. <laughs> stop! No, he did so good. And I'm not even gonna lie, I got a mm. guest request or an inquiry from someone who like helps run one of the treatment centers like that, and I was like, mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah, Mm-mm. right. I don't want you as a guest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's murky, and it's yeah. uh, and what it, you know. I think that the day to day people are trying their best, but mm-hmm. when there's bigger uh, investors and stuff like that that maybe yeah. aren't seeing the big picture of what they're doing, or they've lost sight of mm-hmm. what the big picture is. That I just think it can be very corporatized. So at times, I felt yeah. like, and I'm not going to say which treatment center I was in because you know they did help me. Mm-hmm. I was ready for help, and yeah. I think you have to be ready in order to get anything out of it. Absolutely, uh, but. I did at times feel like I was uh, herded around like a 
cattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I felt like we, you know, I felt like it was hard sometimes to get that one-on-one direct help, um, which is why I think it becomes a revolving door, right? Oh, like, totally. I, and I remember it was the first time I was ever really understanding our system in America and how it works. Mm-hmm. And there were so many girls and older women. And that was always interesting. There was interesting to me, the age range in mm-hmm. there. There was a girl as young as 11 and a woman as old as 60 something um, when I was in there. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, like, I, this is such a powerful issue in this country mm-hmm. if we have women and girls that are in here that are this age because mine was an all-female facility yeah um so i can't really speak to the male part of it because i know that there's definitely mm-hmm. you know a lot of males with eating disorders as well but yeah. but yeah so you know i i got a lot out of it i was also disappointed um mm. in the same in in a way too because a lot of these women had been in and out of treatment for years yeah. they had spent you know a majority of their like adolescence in and out of treatment centers because their insurance companies were either uh yanking them after a few days and their parents couldn't afford it cuz you know treatment's outrageously expensive oh, in yes. this country and it's it's like how do you you know it's such a profiteering racket which really is upsetting in a lot of mm-hmm. ways now did you um, find that that was any different and that you were able to receive more personalized care when you went to outpatient in texas yeah it was smaller yeah, but I, I don't know if that was just a fluke. You know, I don't know if it was just because there weren't as many women in it at that time. Yeah. But uh, outpatient was, it was a little bit more personalized because there was only about 10 to 12 people, whereas in residential, there was like 40. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's only like two or three staff members at a time that were able to kind of watch it. So, you know, there's a lot of like, it's kind of like jail, right? In a lot of ways. Um, I always say it was like, like my experience felt like the orange is the new black of like treatment centers <laughs> because there's a lot of like, <laughs> there's like a lot of like interesting politics that yes. go into all of it. And, and the women that had been there the longest kind of had mm-hmm. a, had a, had a, you know, ways of getting around. There's a lot of just inter- interesting things that needed to there needed to be more people there monitoring yeah mm-hmm. uh and there wasn't so much monitoring uh because it was too big and there was too little stuff yeah. and that that was something that i feel like happens in jail systems all the time as well mm-hmm. or reincar- you know incarceration and stuff like that so totally. yeah it was a, it was an interesting experience and I, i'm thankful for it every day and it's also it has a lot of interesting little edges <laughs> definitely i mean you learn a lot not only recovery wise but a lot about the state of our systems and our Mm. country and and a a whole bunch of stuff, it sounds like. All right. It's time for a short break here. I want to share a sponsor that I've already shared with you guys before, but I am just honestly really, really, really loving the product. And so I want to share with you guys again. And again, also just because I feel like it is important because there are a lot of different things out there when it comes to CBD and that hemp fusion has been really, really great for me and is unique in that they aren't just offering CBD. So you get hemp fusion is CBD mixed with other natural ingredients to kind of uh, best suit your your need, whether it's uh, specifically handling stress or sleep or energy. Um, everything that they do and that they put in their product adds up to really a better product and a better experience for you. So I've I've just I've loved it. Honestly, um, I use it probably weekly um, when it comes to sleep. It's super helpful, um, especially weeks when I have like extra stress. Sometimes it's it's you know I'll increase my 
usage of it. Uh, but it's available both online and at natural products uh, retailer near you. And they also ship anywhere in the U.S. So if you guys want to check them out, you can use promo code TAYLOR for 20% off your first order and free shipping at hempfusion.com. That's promo code TAYLOR. You can get Hemp Fusion shipped anywhere in the U.S. And again, that's TAYLOR for 20% off your first order and free shipping at hempfusion.com with promo code TAYLOR. So I hope y'all check it out and enjoy because I am. (laughs) But now we can get back to the show. I'm curious now for, I want to say, I think you said it was about five years you've been in recovery. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm curious how that, how you've been able to kind of maintain recovery. And I know earlier you mentioned that, you know, you like to have more of an emphasis on recovery than you do on what it it looked like when you were in an active, um, active, uh, I don't even know the word, um, but when you were actually experiencing all the symptoms of your eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, you know, how you've been able to work your recovery the last five years? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things for that question. I appreciate it. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot coming out of treatment. You know, uh, there's a lot of pressure, whether it's from your family, your friends, or going back to work or whatever it is, um, your children to be cured, you know, quote, mm-hmm. quote. Um, whereas I think it's, you know, you, you can't, I, I find it very rare that anyone's going to go to treatment for a few weeks, come out and be completely refreshed. And yeah. it's the same thing with the opiate epidemic or anything like that. I, treatment doesn't give you the, doesn't give you recovery. It gives you the tools to start recovering. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like, you know, I've worked with several patients who, wow, I just said patients. That really tells you how much like talking about this treatment program yeah. <laughs> and like being so clinical that that's like gotten in my head now. I never say patients. Um, I've worked with several clients who um, have struggled with both some kind of alcohol or substance abuse and mm-hmm. co-occurring eating disorder um, mm-hmm. to where treatment is somewhat similar in that recovery is something you really have to work at every single day. And it's not like there's a one-stop shop cure or pill you can take um it's it's really something you have to work at yeah and i'm glad that's the message that you're saying too because i I think it becomes kind of a corporate slogan right to try to say like Mm -hmm. you know how many times do you see like you know, I see ads all the time all over Facebook and stuff because I do so much mental health work. So of course my the ads are targeted mm-hmm. towards people like uh, you and me yeah. <laughs> because of the work we do. And, um, and I see all the time of these, these programs promising 60 days and, mm-hmm. and sobriety and all this yeah, stuff. No. And it's like, yeah, yeah. And it just pisses me off really. Yep. <laughs> like, yeah. Just, That's again, like, the woman that wanted to come on the podcast, that was, that was the whole spiel. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, how could you even believe that? It's just such like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, so I mean, I'm not saying relapse is inevitable. I'm just saying that like it's it's incredibly difficult to. I think it's even I think it's toxic to give that message. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I kind of got out with this expectation that I was going to be you know cured and, and totally like fine. And so when things started getting hard, I moved back to New York and started a job in New York. And when things started getting kind of difficult, I felt again like almost that I needed to like lie about it mm-hmm. and act like it wasn't because my family had paid so much money for this treatment program because my friends were expecting me to go back to normal, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I would say that the first year, I mean, I think the first year was almost more difficult in a lot of ways than, than Mm -hmm. before. (laughs) Like, and I wish I had been, 
I wish I had been prepared for that a little bit more mentally mm. because, uh, you know, when you have all this space where the addiction was, whether it's an eating disorder or opiates or alcohol, whatever, like there's all this space in your brain and all this time, right? Because you've invested all this time and energy into the addiction and then you're left sitting there being like, well, now who the hell am I and what do I do with all this time? Exactly. And yeah, and so I, I struggled with that a lot the first year and I think that's where the writing really became such a huge part of my recovery is that that was the only outlet I had. It was mm-hmm. the only way I knew how to like really get it all out there and, and start blogging about it. And so when my blog started doing well after about a year and it started for whatever reason, you know, just something happened where I was able to publish something. It was like thought catalog. You remember that website? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't even know if it's around anymore. Um, yeah. but thought, yeah, thought catalog, I published something on that and it, you know, a little micro viral or whatever. And then it, and then from there I started getting like more inquiries from, from publications around the country. So, uh, you know, like refinery 29 or cosmopolitan Mm -hmm. or something like that. And so over the years, um, I was really, I always feel like I was just really lucky. I ended up getting, being able to use my writing as a source to deal with recovery and to, to, Mm -hmm. to propose a new way and to propose this idea, this perspective that it's okay to not be okay for the first couple of years and, and that you're, you're going to like, and I, you know, we all know it's not linear, but mm-hmm. in the same way, I was just re- like, I, I was still talking about how hard it was. And I still talk about how hard it is some days. And I don't feel the pressure anymore to be perfect at it. Like mm-hmm. I have bad body image days still. I don't act on behaviors and things like that. But of course, I have bad body image days. Of course, yeah. I have times that I think that I miss the eating disorder when really it's, you know, there's always a reason for why I think I miss it. That's mm-hmm. bigger than that. But yeah, so uh, yeah. That's kind of how it's all unfolded. Mm -hmm. And speaking of of body image, um, were you able to be in or were you in um, any relationships during your early recovery? Good question. Uh, Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think... uh, and I, you know, looking back, I now see it differently than I could have in that time. And, you know, they always say in treatment, like when you get out, you should be on your own. If yeah. you're not married, you know, if you're not in a committed relationship and whatnot, mm-hmm. you should kind of be on your own for the first year or so. And I, uh, I blew right past that advice. Yeah. Most, <laughs> I feel like most people do. And that's always the question I ask that I'm like, okay, so like you've been in recovery for how long? And okay, well, you automatically start dating that person. Like, okay, let's unpack some of this stuff. <laughs> Yeah. How do you even, how are you able to handle that? It must be very difficult because you can see it, you know, and now, cause for me, I can, I can see the relationship I was in right after treatment mm-hmm. and he was, a, he was a great man. Like there was nothing yeah. wrong with him. It was just more, I was, I was very lost in my identity mm-hmm. and didn't know what I want. So I kind of clung on to yeah. this first human that kind of came in and treated me well. Totally. And I, and I kind of, and I, it's so funny now I was in New York and I loved New York and he was in Arkansas of all places, which was totally <laughs> not where I was trying to end up. Yeah. And, uh, and I just, you know, and looking back at, I, I've always been a writer, so I have diary entries and stuff. And I was like, reading I still read about it now and I'm like what I really thought I was gonna move to Arkansas like (laughs) what did I think I was gonna do like yeah it's uh, I mean I find not even with like people I've worked with professionally but I mean with friends and with family like addiction and whether it's with food with an eating disorder or with you know drugs or with alcohol it's it's so prevalent everywhere and often I find you know yeah people do end up in relationships pretty early on in recovery 
regardless of, you know, the, some of the disadvantages to recovery and the consequences of that, um, because we are in such a vulnerable place and because Mm -hmm. we are so desperately seeking some kind of comfort and some kind of, um, you know, external validation of our worth in our recovery, I think that, often people are just searching for that. And, and when, when something comes along that is able to provide you with that, it feels like you have extra fuel to pursue your recovery. And it feels like you're not alone in, in your recovery. And so it makes total sense why people end up in this position. Um, but then there often is just a lot more to unpack and, you know, a lot of, kind of the recovery can be projected onto this person and this person could be triggering things that you maybe haven't fully had the opportunities or the time to actually work through. But again, it is still an opportunity to then actually work through it once it's triggered, but it's, it can just get really messy really quickly. Totally. And then, you know, there's this idea too, as I look back five years in and, and looking at the last couple of relationships I've been in, of like, I had no idea what I needed in a partnership still, yeah. um, right when I first got out. And I was also still young. I was only 24. But I I just, I had no idea how to communicate what I needed from my partner. Mm-hmm. And so it made, it put us in very tough situations where he didn't know how to support my recovery, yeah. especially that first year. And I felt alone and resentful that he didn't know how to support it, right? Because yep. I didn't know, how to, I still didn't know how to use my voice to say what I needed. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been a huge evolution over the last five years is, is as I've grown more comfortable and less shameful around the idea that I, yeah, I have an eating disorder and I always will, in my opinion. Like, I think you can fully recover, but yeah. I always, it's part of my life. Yeah. And, and now I just have a lot more cut and dry about like, this is, I have this, I have days that are hard and this is how I need to be supported. Mm-hmm. And that, that just takes a long time to develop. Yeah. All right, so it's time for a short break here, but while we're discussing food and kind of our relationship to our diet and our and our food, um, I want to share this uh, sponsor and also this product that I've enjoyed using, and um, also just want to say that I think you know when it comes to our relationship with food, that sometimes it can be really stressful just figuring out like how to make good food for us and what, you know, how we actually enjoy food uh, that tastes good and that can be good for us and taking uh, taking out some of that stress of just like, you know, what do I put in it and how much of what? And um, for me, it's been really helpful using HelloFresh. And so I want to share it with you listeners and knowing that, you know, whatever your relationship is with food, you know, do what works best for you. Uh, But one product that I've really enjoyed is using HelloFresh, which is America's number one meal kit. So you get easy seasonal recipes. um, The ingredients are already measured out for you and it's delivered right to your door. So it really just helps things uh, be much more simpler when it comes to actually like creating delicious meals at home. Uh, they help you step by step through the recipe um, and everything that you have, that everything that you need for that recipe, you already have like in the box. So you don't have to stress about like, oh, wait, do I actually have lemons or not? Like it's, it's all right there for you. And it's actually delicious. <laughs> um, it is chef curated. Uh, you can specify like for me, I always put vegetarian because I primarily eat a vegetarian or vegan diet. Um, and the vegetarian recipes that they put on there are delicious. Uh, and HelloFresh actually has five-star recipes more than any other meal kit. So you know that you're getting something delicious. And one last thing I'll say about this is that my favorite part 
It's just how flexible it is. You can change your delivery days, your food preferences. Um, you can add things to your order if you'd like. Um, it's just really flexible. And the fact that it gets delivered right to my door just like gives me a peace of mind sometimes. So I want to offer you guys uh, a little promo code here. If you guys are interested in using HelloFresh, you can get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. Just go to HelloFresh.com slash Taylor N80 and enter Taylor N80. So that's Taylor, the letter N, and then the number 80, 80. So basically it's like receiving eight meals free or you get $20 off your first four boxes. So again, that's $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TaylorN80 and enter TaylorN80 for your promo code. So I hope you guys enjoy that and hopefully it can be helpful with navigating your your relationship with food, what your weekly uh, you know diet will look like. Um, and yeah, I hope that that's helpful for you guys. So make sure to check it out and we can get back to the show. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to navigate body image while also being in a relationship, whether it's, you know, any relationship in the last five years of recovery, whether it's when you're now or your um, past relationships of just how you've been able to even, if you have mm. been able to, to open up with that partner and reach a good place with body image. You know, I think a lot of um, mm-hmm. women in general that don't even have any kind of history of eating disorder, but on some level struggle with body image and that even just initiating or being intimate with a partner, um, even just being naked with a partner, a partner touching their stomach, that all those little mm-hmm. things um, are really difficult. Yeah, uh, I definitely, you know, I still, I still have my ups and downs on that as well. I think I always will. Um, maybe not always, but I kind of just live with the idea that I could and I'm okay with that. But I, I'm open about it. So if there's, if there's a day like recently my partner and I were on a bike ride and I was snapping at him and I could feel myself being like really snippy and he like stopped the bike and was like, what's going on? (laughs) And I just looked at him and I was like, you know what? I'm having a really bad body image day. I'm way inside my head right now. Like, can you just give me a couple minutes? And I just need a few minutes. Like, get I, I'll get out of it. Just don't, you know, like, I was like, don't pressure me. Just give me a second. Yeah. (laughs) And he was like, okay, how can I support you? And I was like, you can support me by just don't be irritated with me and don't worry about me because I mm-hmm. it, I think there's a lot for me it's like if I'm having a bad body image day and the partner goes overboard to try to like compliment it doesn't feel sincere <laughs> yeah. it feels like it feels like they're just trying to like like fix it mm-hmm. and and then if they're not fixing it then they get frustrated at the partner mm-hmm. because the partner's not changing their mindset you know and it's like it becomes this kind of yeah. bullying like this kind of like um, pulling of the string and neither one can give and mm-hmm. so, um, I think it's, it's like, for me, it's, it's been just being direct about it and being direct about being like, especially if there's like intimacy involved, if I'm not feeling it, I'm just not feeling it. And I'm not going to be like, it's not going to change, but it doesn't mean I don't, you know, I'm always like, it doesn't mean I don't want you. It doesn't yeah. mean like, I, it doesn't mean that tomorrow will be it. Like tomorrow might be completely different. It's just right now I'm feeling this please like, don't uh, like no pressure. Just mm-hmm. this is what I'm going through so right now. So how do you feel and, that like... Yeah, I guess how do you feel body image plays a role in like having sex drive in your in your relationship? Oh, I think oh, I think it's a huge factor for many women and mm-hmm. men really. 
is, you know, if we don't feel good about how we look, it's quite hard to be intimate with a partner, no matter how loving that partner is. Mm -hmm. And it's not the, you know, I think partners tend to take that kind of stuff personally. Yeah. Um, because they think like, why, why can't they, you know, I tell them that they're beautiful or I tell them that they're handsome or whatever mm-hmm. all the time. Why can't they just get over it? But that's where they have to do, you know, like the, the person that's struggling with that kind of like, I have, you know, I was diagnosed with body dysmorphic disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I don't see my body clearly sometimes, which yeah. I still sometimes don't believe, but then I'm like reminded of it when someone says something to me and I'm like, you're right. Oh my God, I cannot see myself the way that I just cannot see myself sometimes the way that I wish I could. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just more like, I just have to communicate that. I think there can be a lot of like fuddle, you know, there can be a lot of misinterpretation to that kind of thing, especially if it's with sex, because partners take that so seriously. And if it's re- a rejection, right? Like if they feel, if the partner feels rejected, then yeah. they shut down and get resentful, not understanding that it has nothing to do with them. Mm-hmm. And that it's often, it's often something, it's whatever you're going with internally for you. But if that's not communicated, then how can anyone understand it? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that's, I mean, hopefully something that people can learn how to do throughout treatment, just how to kind of communicate where they're at with that. But I think, um, you know, even if you're not someone that's in treatment, that learning how to communicate, you know, like, I mean, I feel like even days when I'm not necessarily struggling with body image, but that mm-hmm. I just like don't feel sexy. And, you know, if um, if my partner then I can tell starts to feel somewhat rejected of just reiterating that like, it's not that I don't want you. Like I do want you. I'm mm-hmm. just not, I I just don't feel like in the mood. I just don't feel sexy. I don't feel, you know. Well, and there's nothing worse than forced intimacy. Exactly. <laughs> like everyone, exactly. everyone, all parties feel that. Yes. Like, all parties feel that fumbly forced intimacy that can occur at times because we're humans mm-hmm. and uh, it just happens. Yes. I'm all but, about that enthusiastic consent, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, because if both parties are feeling it, then it makes it entirely different experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I just think it's the, I mean, the communication part's hard, and that takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot, you know, and you, it, it, every partner's different too. Some are more receptive to hearing it. I certainly don't have a lot of tolerance for partners that don't that can't listen and mm-hmm. and hear feedback, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And um, I that's not you know that's just not the type of partnership that I'd ever be looking for. I'm always looking for partners that have that empathy to at least be able, maybe not to understand, but at least try to understand and put themselves. Mm-hmm. in my shoes so that I can better put myself in their shoes whenever they're going through something too. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you, I imagine you have to communicate a lot just around um, the recovery with eating disorders, but I'm curious what role, um, you know, you've talked about PCOS and mm-hmm. I think we should talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I don't have PCOS. So I don't, you know, I know bits and pieces about that, but I think, I, I imagine that's something you also kind of have to make sure that your partners are open to learning and, and hearing about and um, empathetic towards. Yeah, you know, I wish infertility was talked about more. I feel mm-hmm. like there's still a lot of shame around infertility. Or not shame, but just um, sad. You know, women have a harder, I think, have a hard time talking about it if they yeah. are dealing with issues around infertility, which happens to like, what, one in four women in the country? I mean, it's crazy. It's it's a lot of people struggle with that issue. And um, when I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's a pretty common um, hormonal disease, for lack of a better word. And so I was born with cysts on my ovaries, which means that I, throughout my life, I've never really had a period. 
Um, I don't menstruate and it, it, I have three times the testosterone of an average woman. And that's part of it. And, and other women have other symptoms. Um, there's a lot of different symptoms that can come with PCOS. Yeah. Uh, and mine were affected mostly hormonally. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly have excess hair because of the t- testosterone. So I'm always like shaving yeah. or not shaving, but waxing my upper lip and whatnot. Oh but, God, I hate doing yeah. that. I used to get it waxed all the time. And now I just end up like tweezing and I'm like, it's one of the most frustrating things, you know, once yeah. a month. I'm like, I spend like, what, a whole fucking hour of my day, like, tweezing my yeah. eyebrows and my lip? Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I know. It's such a pain in the ass. I'm thinking about getting some laser hair removal, honestly, but we'll see somewhere yeah. down the line. <laughs> well, now I understand, too, why even the um, the title of I haven't shaved in six weeks yeah. it means that much more to you. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> I've never really thought about that part of it. You're right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I always have have that conversation pretty early on in a relationship about the potential that I will not be able to biologically conceive or that if Mm -hmm. I do, um, it's going to be potentially very expensive. Now, of course, I've spoken with people with PCOS that have had no issues with pregnancy. I've spoken with people with PCOS who had to go through, you know, like six rounds of IVF. And uh, then I've spoken with other women that have had PCOS that that weren't able to successfully bear a child. So... Mm-hmm. I don't really know at this point what that will look like for me. But, of course, I have to have the conversation. Yeah. So every time I have the conversation, it's always, you know, I just like to be upfront about it. Because if there is, if I am dating somebody who wants their own biological child for, you know, or feels um, feels married to that idea, then, you know, that's something to be upfront about and open about. Um, I certainly also have to, like, I've I've had to put boundaries on conversations like I, you know, it's hard for me to talk about um, pregnancy and whatnot, because I'm not sure if I will ever have that experience. So when uh, I get, I get, I always feel a little bit um, saddened by comments like, oh, maybe you're pregnant, you know, something like that. Mm, Yeah. Uh, And I've had to put like a hard boundary around that kind of stuff, because that to me is like not very, you know, like with my partner, I always like look at them or something. I'm like, why, you know, like I don't appreciate comments like that. That's like painful for me to hear Mm -hmm. Um, because that's a huge issue. You know, it's a huge issue that I struggle and worry about is is whether Mm -hmm. or not I will. But I'm also very happy uh, for adoption or yeah. any other method. So I'm kind of, I'm open to whatever at this point, I'm 30. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm open to whatever comes along and just taking life as it comes. But yeah, there is, it is definitely a conversation you have to have with partners mm-hmm. and be open about from the beginning. Otherwise that's, you know, it's not fair to not tell them. And it's also something that I don't want to feel shame about. So I, I'd like to get it over with in the first place. Yeah. And it's, it's a part of, of your story and a part of who you are. Um, Mm -hmm. and so then are you, do you experience like symptoms like every month, like related to PCOS, like pain or anything like that? Uh, no, I don't, other than I don't menstruate. So I don't have periods, um, which, you know, every, every now and then I'll have a natural one. That's just kind of how it goes. Mm. Um, every now and then I'll have one like once every four or five years. Um, but if I do have a period, it's because I have to take progesterone or I have to take a certain type of birth control. Hmm. And um, I don't really, yeah, I'm so that's kind of really the main symptom I have is that. And, um, you know, I deal with like other certain things like the hair, the hair, the overgrown hair. And then uh, my hair on my head is actually thinning a little bit as I get older, which has been a little bit difficult. So hmm. there's a lot of little PCOS things. And, and a lot of women, you know, 85% of women that deal with PCOS 
are at least clinically um, diagnosed as obese, although I think that that's a whole word that's been, you know, kind of manhandled by the medical community. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But yeah, a lot of women struggle with their weight with PCOS and struggle with their diet because there's a lot of different diet factors. And I certainly like, I try to watch certain aspects of my diet, but because of the eating disorder history, like Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to monitor, like, you know, I don't like to like put huge, huge um, barriers on my diet because when I got diagnosed, it certainly like did not help my eating disorder at the time. Because yeah, doctors will scare the shit out of you if you get diagnosed with PCOS about like what will happen or what could happen with your weight or diabetes. You have a higher chance of diabetes, et cetera. And so I freaked out already being in the eating disorder when I was diagnosed with it and just like started restricting almost like everything it felt like, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, so uh, I don't anymore and my weight has stayed perfectly the same and I haven't really suffered any any huge consequence from it. But yeah, it's something I live with mm-hmm. and it's something I like to write about because I think it's, um they still don't have a cure for it. And it's something that's so common with so many yeah. women, like one in 10 women or something like that, I think. Mm-hmm. have PCOS and we just don't have really a cure for it. Although they're starting to get more and more um, medications to help treat it, which is nice to see. Mm, yeah. Um. Do you like, how does that, how is the reaction usually like when you discuss that with a partner? I'm curious specifically about the hair piece as to how <laughs> your male, your heterosexual male partners react to that. Um, I've done an episode like on body hair and I just feel like as women, it's like we should talk about this shit because it does impact us and it goes totally against the societal standards of what beauty is and then Mm. having that overgrowth and yeah, I'm just... I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about that. Yeah, totally. Um, I usually like, cause I've posted so much online about like having to like wax my upper lip and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I feel like for the most part, it's just kind of how you, where you, you know, like I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I don't care anymore about whether or not that affects my male partner. It, it's just something I live with. And it's, it, to me, it's not a big deal. I so I it. think I have, I have kind of this like way of presenting it. That it's just matter of fact. I, love <laughs> like, it. I certainly don't, I don't make a big thing of it. Like, cause I have chest hair, like um, a little bit, like, mm-hmm. and that's, it's typical of PCOS, the pain in the ass, Yeah, but I have little hairs like right around like my chest area, like my nips, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's, it's common. Yeah. Um, I used to be horrified by that like body image like horrified by it and no it's just it's just it's just it is what it is (laughs) yeah there's nothing i can do about it and so other than like uh other than get it waxed Mm -hmm. off every now and then but at this point i'm just kind of like well you know you're gonna like me with it or you're gonna like me without it because if you're that shallow then to me i'm like whatever exactly (laughs) yes no i i feel very very similarly um yeah, we could do a whole conversation on on body hair, but um, I think that's amazing that you've been able to reach that place so that I used to make such a big deal out of it and was like so terrified of it. And the more that mm-hmm. I saw other women talk about it and be like, yeah, I get my lip waxed. I was like, oh my God, other people do this. Oh my God. I know. Like, why do we not talk <laughs> about that more? Because it's like, and then, and then, you know, sometimes like I start, when I start admitting that I have this like body hair, Oftentimes I'm met with like a unanimous, like if I'm in a group of women or something, yeah. I'm met with like a unanimous amount of like, oh yeah, same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, 
what? Oh, so we're all going through this crap mm-hmm. and we're all like spending like all this exorbitant amount of money to get rid of hair yes. when really it seems like pretty much all of us battle it regardless of PCOS. Mm-hmm. I just happen to have thicker hair that like comes in sometimes because of that male, exactly. uh, that male testosterone. But yeah, so I, I, I wish we could do a whole episode. You know, there's, there's quite a few women out there, especially women with PCOS, like uh, that have beards because that's quite common. Um, I don't struggle with that at all but there are women that have like enough excess hair that they literally I mean they do have beards Hmm. and there's this one woman I can send it to her I cannot think of her name right now but she she wears her beard proudly she's British and she wears her beard around and and she was one of the first people I ever found on Instagram um that just owned her owned her PCOS beard and like the work that she does is incredible and she really helped me be like wow okay you know what (laughs) that's amazing yeah she's yeah Hmm. It just, it makes me almost want to like transition into like a conversation on like sexual fluidity and like what we find, you know, sexually attractive. And um, I could talk about that forever because with PCOS, (laughs) there's a lot of studies. There's a lot of studies that are coming around with, um, with uh, lesbians actually. Mm. Um, And there's a high, what they're finding is that a high percentage of lesbians and, you know, I'm not going to even throw out a number because I don't have it directly on top of my brain, but a high percentage of lesbians um, have PCOS and Mm. they're starting to wonder, they're starting to see if there's a possible correlate. And, you know, I identify as uh, bisexual. Hmm. So I've dated women and men throughout my Didn't for, know that. I would have yeah. asked you questions about that too, girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've 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 dated women and men yeah. for most of my life. And mm-hmm. I I've often wondered if there was a link between PCOS and that as well. Um, I'm never going to, you know, I can't say definitively if there is or not, but they are starting to see more and more. And so I think that attributes to fluidity as well Mm -hmm. and attributes to sexual fluidity because I I often wonder if it's because I have more um, male testosterone or more male hormones than than someone else. And I've wondered if maybe that has put me, you know, the Kinsey scale. Yeah. I've wondered if that's kind of why Mm -hmm. I am able, why I've been attracted to those sexes throughout my life. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because even just when we talk about like uh, feminine and masculine energies and like getting in touch with both of those and being able to be attracted to both feminine and masculine energies. And like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, there's, there's so much room for conversation on this. Um, but I know we, yeah. we have to kind of wrap up our conversation for today. Um, but I'm just so appreciative of the fact that you're so open about all the different things in your life, even the things that, you know, are present that you struggle with and that are really vulnerable for you and um, really, really impactful to your life that I think it it does take a lot of courage to talk about these things in a way that is healing for you and very like informative and um, empowering for other people. So I'm just really appreciative that, that, you know, you've done this kind of work and are committed to doing the work and to sharing it. Thank you. And you know, and on, on that note, just um, if you ever want to talk about this offline or wherever, but Madeline Moon, if you do you follow her on Instagram? Uh, I don't think I do. 
she talks so much about the feminine and the masculine and i i could see you really enjoying just from what you were just saying i could see yeah. you really enjoying um having a conversation she has a podcast as well actually and i've and she and i are friends from college funny enough okay. but she uh but yeah she is really in the feminine and masculine space mm. and she is she's really created a whole business model around hmm. around teaching women and men you know around that work and she's incredible so if you ever want me to if you want me to send it to you like i'll i'm happy to send it to you so totally you can look at it. no that she's would, a she's a cool chick. cool i'll send it to you after this <laughs> yeah she i mean i think even just in terms of like who we're attracted to like being able to you know be intimate with with women, with men, with whoever. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's something we carry so much shame around and there are such mm-hmm. strict societal standards around who is attractive and who is not and what a man looks like and what a woman looks like. Yes. And I think it's just suppressing so much shit in us. Um, yeah, and all the bullshit about like how if you are, if you do identify with both sexes like mm-hmm. you know i get a lot of shit for the women that i've been attracted to in my life because they don't look you know like they're because of the yeah i'm just gonna leave it there <laughs> that's a whole other <laughs> subject it's not even worth getting into yeah. right now but yeah, yeah i definitely agree that would be an interesting podcast episode if you ever did something like that i definitely would want to hear that because there's a lot of stigma that goes around who mm-hmm. we should be attracted to if we identify you know as x or x yeah totally well dang see this is why i love doing this because you never know where the conversation is going to go this whole time yeah. i was like yeah we're going to talk about you know eating disorders and and pcos and here we are talking about feminine and masculine energies yeah. and being bisexual so you never know <laughs> totally yeah and i'm definitely I'm madeline moon she's uh she's incredible i'll send yeah. it to you yeah please do um well thank you so much for t- taking the time to chat with me today and um, definitely would love to, you know, hear more about kind of how you've been able to navigate your relationships um, throughout recovery. Um, and I really appreciate the fact that you are honest and, and share about all of that. Um, and I know yeah, we've, we've shared um, that your Instagram is at Lindsay Hall writes and that you have the blog. Um, I haven't shaved in six weeks. If people want to find you, are those kind of the two places people should go or is there anywhere yeah. else people can find you? They, and they can always email me at lindsayhallblog at gmail.com as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. You're awesome. All right. And thank you guys so much for making it all the way through this episode. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I've learned so much and now I'm just like ready to chat about all kinds of things. Um, if you guys want to check out Lindsay, please visit her Instagram at Lindsay Hall writes. Um, she's honestly sharing some really vulnerable, very well written, obviously, um, posts on there that I think could be really helpful for you guys. So make sure to check her out. And if you haven't yet, I would love for you guys to leave a review or a rating on iTunes and let me know what you're enjoying about the show. Um, would love to get those reviews up to a thousand here soon. So please, if you haven't just take a minute and head on over there to leave that review and that does it for today. So I appreciate you guys so much. I hope you have a wonderful week and I'll talk to you next time. podcast is brought to you by Wave Podcast Network. Check out all of our shows, including the Brain Candy Podcast, I Don't Get It, Coffee Convos, and Let's Talk About It. 
Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.